Hi, it's me, Duncan Crawford, and welcome to Top Class, the podcast where we talk about all things education. Today, we're talking about skills such as creativity, curiosity, self-control, responsibility, empathy, and many others. How important are they to education in schools and for employability in later life? And how much focus should there be on them in the classroom? I'm glad to say I'm joined by Professor in Child Development and Education, Stephanie Jones, from the Harvard Graduate School of Education to discuss all of this and much, much more. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Now, to those who aren't familiar with your work, you focused much of your research on the effects of poverty and violence on child development. You've carried out numerous research projects into social and emotional learning. You lead EASL, Harvard University's Social Emotional Learning Lab. You serve on numerous national advisory boards and consultant groups linked to social emotional development. And perhaps most importantly of all, you've even been a consultant to Sesame Street. Yes. Which I, 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 get, <laughs> I guess the first question has to be, have you ever met Kermit the Frog? Elmo? Oh, well, uh, only in my own home with the stuffies that my children have. Um, I have not met them in person, of course, but maybe someday. I see. I see. So you have a relationship with the program makers. We haven't met Kermit yet, but why are the makers of Sesame Street talking to you? And what kind of things are you telling the program makers? So um, Sesame Street actually has a really interesting model, developmental model for their programming. And it's rooted in connecting evidence and science to how they design and what they put inside their show. And at one point, maybe five years ago, they were designing a whole series focused on self-regulation and executive function. And to kind of inform the science part of their programming, they bring in experts, researchers, uh, expert practitioners who've done work in that particular area to advise them about what the core skills are, how they develop, and how they might embed them in their programming. And so I went to Sesame Street, (laughs) to their offices, a couple of times and we did these kind of seminars where I talked as much as I could about self-regulation and executive function and what it looks like in behavior, how it's supported. And then they took all the information and they wrote their programming and the season 45, you can go back and watch it, is all about self-regulation. So what you're telling Sesame Street is also what you're telling others in terms of how they should approach teaching to help students learn. To those who don't know, what is social and emotional learning? Why is it important? And what's you know, self-regulation for that matter? Okay, I'll be relatively concise and I'll do it by asking you and anybody who listens to this later to just imagine a situation where you have a child or a group of children who are learning in some setting. It might be a classroom setting. They could be learning to read. They're sitting with a teacher and the teacher is reading them a book and they're all focused on the book. And for them to access that learning task, to hear the words, 
to imagine their meaning, to think about their relationship to the scene in the story, kids need to be able to do a few basic things. And you can imagine yourself having to do these things. One is focus their attention, put their mind on the words, their ears on the words to listen and imagine. So they really need to focus their attention and eventually shift it from one thing to another. That's one thing. The second thing is they need to manage their behavior. So they're in a group setting. They need to control their, their thinking and their bodies so that they can access what's being said to them or what's, what the instructions are, whatever it is. They need to uh, have positive relationships with others. So they need to be able to work together to feel trust and connection to the educator or the teacher who's reading the book. And all through that, they need to know about and manage and imagine feelings and emotions that come up. All of those skills and that there are sort of derivative forms, all the, the ways that we describe them and the things that we call them, those are social and emotional skills. You need them to learn. You need them to have productive and positive interactions with other people. You use them all the time. So in their most basic form, those are social and emotional skills. So around the world, there's huge differences in how much focus there is on teaching or teaching being a part of developing social and emotional skills in children. So how much focus do you think there should be in schools? How much of a priority should it be? I think it is perhaps one of the most important things to focus on in any learning setting, it can be in schools or other places, um, because it's, it's such a core foundation. It's a foundation for all of the other kinds of things that we need to do in those settings. So, so that doesn't mean it has to be the exclusive focus. It has to be, you know, uh, the only thing, but it has to be part of the things. And, you know, there's lots of research on social and emotional skills all around the world. There's lots of research on um, the degree to which programs and strategies and practices designed for schools are effective. And all of that material tells us that children will do better in school if we spend some time on these skills or and or if we take make an effort to sort of weave social and emotional learning into core academic content or into the content of uh, activities that happen outside of school or in other places where kids learn. So. I think they're pretty important. Just to delve into that a little bit more, are there big country differences or between regions of the world in terms of how these skills are taught or considered? That's a great question. I mean, in our lab, uh, the easel lab, we do, I'm going to answer that indirectly. We do basically three kinds of work. We do basic research, like longitudinal developmental research studies. We design strategies and practices for the fields, for those working in schools to use. And with then we, we design um, resources for people who want to get involved or do work in social and emotional learning. In our research, We've learned that um, maybe over the last 10 to 20 years, there's just been a surge of interest in social and emotional skills. And given 
the variety of focus and educational settings and the kinds of things that happen in schools around the world, you would imagine there's also huge variety in the domain of social and emotional learning in terms of what is emphasized, how it's supported, how far along the path in doing the work anybody is. So there's just tremendous variation, which I think is a good thing, right? It's, you wouldn't expect the work to look exactly the same everywhere, and it shouldn't. About the work, some of the things you mentioned previously about, you know, different skills, for example, learning to work together or how to navigate conflict, how to focus on something, how to manage feelings. Haven't they always, to an extent, always been part of a child's education, part of what good teachers do? So is this not necessarily that much of a new thing? It's more about extending good practice. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, when you look at what makes for effective practice, which is really, if you look across the whole variety of strategies and approaches and focusing in particular on those that have been studied and deemed effective, you really see three fundamental things. One is an emphasis on ensuring the learning environment is safe and supportive and that children are made to feel that they are welcome and that they belong there. That's one key element of effective practice. The other is teaching. <laughs> no surprise, right? That that the skills are taught explicitly, which means that they are, it is clear what the skill is. There is an opportunity to, to practice it and learn about it. And then there's some kind of discussion about it in the setting or a kind of uh, metacognitive debrief. Those two things are characteristic of high quality teaching generally. So I agree with you that these are kind of a focus on social and emotional skills is really fundamentally about high quality teaching. I think what's happened in this field over the last 10 to 20 years is that this kind of work has been made more explicit and there's an effort to support educators to weave it more intentionally into their practice. And that's been happening all around the world. I wanted to pick up on what you said there about, you know, it's essentially a part of high quality teaching and has been for a long time. Because according to OECD research, 15 year olds exhibit lower social and emotional skills than 10 year olds. There's a big drop off there, apparently. And why is that? Uh, I have no idea. No, I, I, <laughs> I'm so glad question. we've got you on the expert with 20 years of research yes, into the exactly. topic. And, uh, this is what we get. No, please carry on. The best kind of experts always are willing to admit when they don't know something. That's true. Um, but of course I'm always willing to hazard, a, a, a guess. And, and my sense is that social and emotional learning has historically and in its practice, been directed more frequently and uh, just with more depth and breadth in the kind of zero to 12 year old range. So you see lots of social and emotional learning in early childhood settings, tons. I mean, it's just woven right through it. And that's true in the US and around the world. And you see lots of practices and strategies that are designed for primary or elementary school. And there's, there's really, I think, 
partly because for structural reasons and partly because there's a kind of an orientation toward higher education in secondary school. There's just less, less of this work designed explicitly for secondary. And so you might expect to see, because of that, a drop-off in skills, which, which tells us that there's a real opportunity to design supports and weave them into secondary school or, you know, into the period of adolescence. So presumably then you don't think that drop-off in skills is inevitable for 15-year-olds, that if changes, structural changes were made, that could change? Sure, sure. I mean, absolutely. It's not like social and emotional skills are less important for adolescents. They're important for everyone. Early childhood through adulthood and well into aging. (laughs) We all have them and use them all the time. So given everything you've just said there, do you ever have conversations with policymakers about these issues? And if so, what kind of reception do you get, reaction do you get when presumably making proposals to make structural changes to education in later years? So um, in our group, we haven't so far spent a ton of time talking directly with policymakers. There are groups in the U.S. who have uh, really devoted a lot of resources and energy into the kind of policy lanes. And my sense is that there's a great deal of receptivity among some who see social and emotional skills as an opportunity to support children in that domain, but also academically and are willing to think creatively about how to provide schools with the kinds of technical assistance they need to think about how to weave it into their learning setting on the one hand. On the other hand, increasingly, there is kind of a weird politicization of this domain and others are actively working against it um, under this idea that social and emotional learning is an agenda for something else, which is absolutely not the case and in truth really quite ridiculous. You mentioned the politicization of the domain, so let's get into that in a bit more detail for people who aren't aware because there are many loud critics in certain countries who are opposed to teaching these kinds of skills in the classroom. Some critics, for example, have described social and emotional learning as leftist propaganda. For example, they've accused schools of trying to indoctrinate youth with liberal ideology. Uh, Do you see any substance in those kinds of points of view? Uh, No, (laughs) I don't. Um, I, I return always to the foundations and I think about the learner and the learning setting and, you know, thinking about all of us throughout our lives as learners and the kinds of things that help us learn and just navigate reality, which is, you know, you need to focus your attention and shift it just to get through your morning with your own children, (laughs) right? So you need to remember what they need. You need to distribute your attention to do what you need to do, all in service of getting out of the house on time to get to work and school. So we're all deploying social and emotional skills in our everyday lives. And they are a direct and clear support for the kinds of things that we hope kids will learn in school. So take, for example, this idea that emotions don't belong in school 
and think back to uh, your own uh, academic history and the things that were the most frustrating to you. You know, like the moment you're trying to understand uh, an algebraic function. Here's my moment, right? You don't understand it. You feel like you might not be able to get help. You're embarrassed because everybody around you might understand it. And you get frustrated and maybe you lash out at somebody, right? You can see exactly how emotions are deeply tied to learning things in school and that, you know, having some supports for noticing those emotions and managing them in that moment might help you learn the algebra. And having an educator in the room who says, who can see where kids are struggling, notice their emotional, you know, moment or world and respond, they're going to be more effective teachers because more of their kids are going to be learning the algebra or whatever it is. So, so when I think about these questions, I just return there and I can't see how you can disentangle the two. Do some teachers or parents complain sometimes about the amount of time potentially devoted to social and emotional learning? Do some consider it a distraction from academic learning? And if so, how big a challenge is that? How difficult is that to overcome? So the people that we work with typically say the opposite, which is um, that there isn't enough time or opportunity to weave supports for academic learning like social and emotional skills into the kind of the teaching day. So we hear that there needs to be an opportunity to more directly weave this work into the school day. That's what we hear from educators. We also hear from parents uh, often that they're worried about these domains um, and want to see their children supported. Most parents will say they want their children to have the feeling that they belong in school, that they are recognized and noticed in their school, and that they are welcome in the school. That's what parents want their kids to feel about school. And these kinds of supports do that. I haven't, in our interactions with parents and teachers, which are many, haven't heard teachers say, we're spending too much time here. It's usually the opposite. To those who don't know, what practically can teachers do? And for an example here, maybe a maths teacher, what can they do in their lessons to support the kinds of skills you're talking about? So uh, there are lots of different things. I mean, they um, something like having a practice or a strategy at hand for kids when they are getting frustrated or when they seem like they're struggling to focus. It could be that you do a quick brain game or something that takes, you know, five to 10 minutes in the classroom that gives students a chance to kind of settle their brains, but at the same time practice something that's useful, like an executive function skill, like working memory or inhibitory control or something that's going to support them to be able to do the math. So it could be something like that. It could be that uh, an educator is very keenly aware of who's getting frustrated, who's moving ahead, and can adjust her practice around the lesson to support those who are struggling. And in the process, do it in a way that showcases that she or he is 
noticing how kids are feeling, saying it directly, talking about it explicitly, and then responding. And that all is a form of sort of modeling social and emotional skills for kids that they then pick up and will deploy in their own life. Coming back to some of the research you've carried out in the past, what, for example, is the impact of poverty on the development of different kinds of skills? That's a great question. And if you if you just think about uh, what poverty imparts, it creates a set of additional stressors on individual and family life that influence the development, the deployment, uh, the use of social and emotional skills. And I would say that they're that social and emotional skills, that kind of body of skills, are particularly vulnerable to experiences of adversity and stress. And it and and I'm not, I'll just say to everybody, I am not a brain scientist, but there are neuroscientists who've studied the kind of stress response system, the way the brain and the body responds to stress. And in that work, it becomes very clear that this kind of set of skills, especially skills like self-regulation, executive function, those kinds of things are particularly susceptible to experiences of stress. So what we see in research is that things like uh, low income, uh, exposure to trauma or traumatic events like violence are quite strongly related to challenges in the social and emotional domain. The other side to that story is that when designing and implementing strategies and practices and interventions that support those skills, you can interrupt that cycle or that relationship. So, so social and emotional learning interventions make a big difference. So if we take all of this and we cast it into the pandemic, everyone around the globe has been exposed to some form of like everyday chronic stress. You just took away my next question because you mentioned periods of stress and I was immediately going to ask you what with COVID shutting down skills for long periods in many countries, what impacts has that had on child development? Have there been studies to know the impact? So there are lots of studies uh, emerging that um, of different types that are focused on the impact of the pandemic on children's mental health and well-being, their social and emotional skills, and absolutely their academic skills. And there's a lot of talk in particular about um, declining or lost or missed uh, opportunities for academic learning and therefore um, lower academic skills. That's very clearly something that has happened in the US and around the world. And it is particularly acute, those findings, for children and families who otherwise are vulnerable or struggling. In the social and emotional domain, we've seen in our own research and in research of others, pretty significant impacts on children's social and emotional skills. What we hear from educators, every time we go out and talk to people in the field, something along the lines of, the children in my setting, in my grade, my fourth graders, my fifth graders, my third graders, they're all about two years behind in their social and emotional skills, meaning they're, the fourth graders are coming into school working on the skills of second graders. And so 
Um, and that bears out in our data. Um, we have a number of longitudinal studies that began before the pandemic, and we continue to collect data through and afterwards, and we see that exact type of drop in social and emotional skills. Forgive me for coming back to what some critics say about social and emotional skills, but um, as you mentioned assessment there, one criticism is, or a question mark raised, is whether it really is possible to assess these skills. So how do you assess that a child is two years behind and say that definitively? So uh, this is a, a big can of worms. <laughs> um, and Let's open them. <laughs> let's open it and just spill them all over. Uh, assessment and measurement is complicated. There's lots of tools out there uh, that are used in research to capture social and emotional skills. They're all different types of tools. There are surveys that parents complete. There are surveys that educators, teachers complete. There are direct assessments, so like performance-based tasks that are intended to capture one set of skills or another. There are observational tools. So there's lots of stuff out there. And in our group, we use a set of tools pretty consistently across studies um, and they are we use them because we've observed them to be sensitive to the impact of interventions in experimental designs they uh, document growth and change in social and emotional skills over time so we select measures that we think are both closely tied to the skills that we are trying to capture and they show malleability, meaning they're sensitive to interventions, but also they capture growth and change in skills over time. And I think that that's basically what any researcher is thinking about when they're selecting a tool. So in our studies, we use those tools and we have a sense of roughly where children are at different developmental stages. So if you know, kids are two years behind or whatever it is due to COVID, what do you think education leaders should be doing to support teachers to lift them back up and get to where they should be in terms of progressing in the, these kinds of skills? So I think one thing is to take this domain seriously and uh, give children and educators some time in educational settings to focus on these skills. So when we talk a lot about academic learning loss without at the same time talking about challenges in the social and emotional domain, we're not talking about the whole picture and we're not gonna make progress in either place if we don't do both together. So it's really about taking it seriously and devoting some energy and time investment to this domain inside schools. So that's one thing. The other is we need to just think differently about our expectations. So when we talk about sort of children being maybe behind in their social and emotional skills, that doesn't mean that nobody's functioning well. <laughs> it just means that we have to think about our expectations slightly differently for kids in schools so that we give them a chance, you know, to grow those skills and to do it in a way that lines up with where they are in that moment. One fear I have is that if we don't uh, shift expectations or sort of think differently about this, we are gonna be 
um, implementing responses to children's behavior that are not appropriate to what kids have experienced it and what they can do. So we might see uh, incidences of, of disciplinary action increase when it shouldn't, right? We should actually be thinking about what kids need to learn and know and doing the things to support them wherever they are, rather than responding with sort of harsh and punitive measures because that could be, you know, under conditions of strain in educational settings where people gravitate toward. And that is probably not going to help kids over time. Stephanie, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, if any policymakers are listening, you can contact Professor Stephanie Jones at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Look her up. I'm sure she'd be willing to uh, help you make decisions on what should or should not happen. Thank you so much for joining me, Stephanie. It's been great to talk to you. I wonder, before you go, if there was one social and emotional skill you wished you had more training on or better at, what would it be for you? Well, of course it would be self-regulation because I can't stop talking. I can't, I mean, I have no self-regulation skills, which is why I spend all my time focused on it, social and emotional skills. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time. Thank you. To those listening, thanks for listening and do join us again for another episode of Top Class soon. Bye.